0: Last week we began. We began looking at the subject, the question of of speech, and particularly the question of lashon hara, that form of uh, saying things that are negative, which is a specific prohibition of the Torah. We tried to begin examining examining that subject, and we said we continue tonight and try to see some of the background, the spiritual, perhaps, depth behind that subject and take it further. Who was not here last week? Who was not here last week? Where were you? <laughs> <laughs> well, are we not going to revise the whole discussion from last week what we did was look at the more practical side. I'll revise very briefly, just the, just put us in context, but you are referred to that discussion or the sources that we mentioned there in order to revise for yourself or catch up on the practical aspects of this of this question. Very briefly, very briefly we said that this prohibition of the Torah, which is the prohibition of saying things that are or indicating things that are harmful or that are insulting or negative about someone else. Essentially things that are true. We're not talking about the, what, the Western concept of slander or libel, which is saying things that are untrue about somebody. That's not the subject at all. <coughs> We're talking here about saying things that are perfectly true, but which one may not say. That's known as Lashon And also rachidus which is tail-bearing, to tell someone something, that someone else did or said Which you know will make this person feel Negatively or damage the relationship between them That fits into the same general category <laughs> We said that there are, two, there are two areas here to be discussed One is the, the spiritual background The depth of understanding of what this area means And its particular severity In which I look at this, at that this evening But in order to understand what the subject is That we are that discussing We looked at its practical definition and practical application last week. And without going into detail, just to put us in the, in the context, the concept, again, without the fine detail, is that the concept of Lashon Hora is, just in a couple of minutes of revision, is the prohibitions, explicit prohibition in the Torah of indicating something that someone would rather not be said about them, something that's negative or harmful that's true. That's what you may not say. I tried to make clear last week that you may, not also, you may also not listen to such things. Right? If someone tells you something negative about someone else, you, in fact, are prohibited from listening to that information. And we discussed all the laws of what, what happens when you can't help hearing it, and what happens when you're obliged to listen because you're a therapist. Or we, we tried to cover some of that ground last week. But in general, that's the concept. The concept is you say something that's true, accurate, that is not complementary, that is a massive and extremely severe prohibition uh, in the Torah. We spent a lot of time trying to discuss the exceptions, which very briefly fit into the following concept, and that is that when you have to say something that's negative, for a reason, for example, the general concept we call to Alisar, means that there's a positive reason. For example, you know someone is about to marry someone else, and you know that one of the parties has some problem that would be a serious a serious problem in the marriage, they have a very serious illness, or they have a serious mental, emotional problem, or a criminal problem perhaps, or something that would make a material difference in the potential marriage, or employer employee, pending employee relationship, or partnership perhaps, or even your children playing with a child, where you know that family has certain, certain, or the child himself or herself is problematic and would be negative, All those types of situations, you are, in fact, obliged to disclose the information. You're obliged to disclose the information because you have here potential harm that you can stop by disclosing the information. And therefore, in such circumstances, you're allowed to disclose. In fact, you're obliged to. And in fact, strictly speaking, you're obliged to convey that information even if you're not asked. Even if you're not asked. (coughs) Not only if someone says, I'm thinking of marrying so-and-so, and I know that you know them. Do you know anything about them that I should know? But even if they don't ask you, and they appear to be going ahead with this thing, and you happen to know something about that person that is material in the (coughs) pending marriage, (coughs) then you are obliged to tell the person. If you're standing outside a shop where goods are being sold that are faked or forged or some other financial damage, physical or financial damage is about to take place, you have to tell the person going in that this uh, this is the case, even if they don't ask you. Now, before you put this into practice, the the, the, the study here, the, the, the focus of the study in this particular area area has to be that before you can say that which is negative, you have to satisfy certain criteria. And again I don't want to go into detail on each point, there are people who who did come last week and they I'm sure have studied it since then and gone into the, the details. But just in very brief overview, before you can disclose information that is harmful, that is negative, you need to satisfy a number of criteria. I'm sure you have revised them all week and you're able to rattle off all six or seven or eight of them. But just not to embarrass those who weren't here, I'll save them for you briefly. And that is that before you disclose information, you must be sure of a number of points. And they're very, very exacting. And therefore, it pays to think long and hard before you go over and disclose the information that you have at your disposal. And some of the criteria are, and again, I urge you to look it up yourself. It's an essential area for every Jew Possibly even every human being in a certain way, but every Jew has to know this area very intensely. I tried to con- convince you. I did my best to convince you last week that it's got nothing to do with being religious in the formal or ritualistic sense. Right? You can be, you can be not yet formally observant, uh, and yet this is certainly an area that has to be worked on. It's got nothing to do with being observing things that you that you don't understand or. Don't yet understand. This is a natural area of natural law, quite apart from being based on a spiritual <coughs> imperative. Before you go and disclose the information, you must be sure of the following criteria. First of all, it must be first-hand knowledge. Not good enough repeating hearsay because you think you heard, you know, a <coughs> rumor that somebody has some problem. That's not good enough. Hearsay is not acceptable in, in and It's not in the Jewish court of law. It's not acceptable here either. You have to know it first hand. Secondly. It has to be material. That means if, you, if it's something vague or something that is not likely to make a difference, you know that this person intends to marry this individual. <coughs> and you know that this deficiency that you know about is actually a very modest deficiency. It's a relative weakness, let's say. But it's not likely to be material. But then you're forbidden to say it. It's, it's not a significant deficiency or weakness you're forbidden to say it. Thirdly, Even if it is significant, but you know it won't make any difference to the person you're telling. In your best judgment, they will still go ahead with the marriage or the partnership or the employer, whatever it is. So then you're forbidden to say it also. What are you achieving by saying this thing when you're not going to affect the situation? Fourth, You must not be able to affect that change any other way. If you can prevent them from coming to harm without saying this negative thing about that person, then that is what you'd be obliged to do. You can't go and say something negative when there's an alternative. Fifth or sixth, wherever we are now. Um, You may not do this if you have a personal vindictive interest in saying this thing. You can't do that. That means if you once employed this individual and they did some very serious harm to you and now, and and that's never been recouped. That damage has never been made up. And someone else now comes to you and says, I'd like to employ that person. Do you know anything problematic about them? They come to you for a reference. And in fact you do, because it happened to you. You have to be very clear that when you say this reference and you say what's problematic about the person, you're not doing it with any vindictive attempt to harm them because they harmed you. That that would be taking revenge and you may not do that. You have to work on yourself to the point where you can say it because it needs to be said and not because you get the vindictive pleasure out of striking back. That's a deep emotional work that has to be done. You have to do that. And seventh or eighth, um, you must be reasonably sure that the damage that will accrue to the party about whom you speak will not be greater than would have been their due in a basting. That means that if you tell this potential customer that this seller is doing something dishonest and the effect will be that the customer will shop elsewhere, which, you, which is exactly the intended and proper effect, that's fine. But if this customer will take violent action right, and they will, they will harm this person who is doing this thing wrong far more than would have been their due in the course of law, then you may not do that because, yes, what will happen is a disproportionate damage. You're not allowed to do that. These are some of the criteria that need to be, that need to be applied. There's much else to study here. It's a very, very detailed area, it's a very logical area, very detailed area. And uh, with your permission, we'll move on from, from the technical details of how this mix was to be applied leaving you to research it further yourself. Last week I mentioned a couple of references, and uh, you're welcome to use the recording of that discussion as an introduction, and there are many detailed references and very much written in English that brings this to um, into integrate uh, clear relief. Touches on other mitzvahs. Many other mitzvahs. Touches on the mitzvah of judging people favorably before you go and say negative things. You have to ask yourself it could not be a logical explanation for what you saw that in fact is not negative. You have to go into that mitzvah. You have to go into... There's also a mitzvah of correcting people when someone did something negative to you. Apart from the mitzvah of repeating it to someone who may be harmed, you have a mitzvah to go to the person who did it to you and speak to them about it. And it has a whole set of laws. That's called toychacha. It's another whole area of Jewish law. Somebody harms you, they do something negative, you have to go and face them, confront them, and correct them. And it's a very, very sensitive and exacting area. It has to be in private, it has to be in every precaution taken that you shouldn't hurt them or embarrass them any more than necessary it should be done in such a way that they, you give them the best possible chance of accepting the rebuke that you, you say you have to find a way to say it in such a gentle and kindly way that they will, they're likely to take it positively there's another area of law here just to show you how far it goes you may not correct someone if you know they won't listen there are many, there are many aspects many areas of halacha where if you correct the person and you know that they won't listen you should not have told them in the first place why? because in many, you have to know in which areas, I'm not going to go into the details now, but in vast areas of of halacha, if you correct a person who will not listen, you've actually harmed them seriously. Can you see why? Because if a Jew is doing something wrong and they don't know, yes, if you're doing something wrong and you don't know, you don't have access to information, you're not brought up religiously knowledgeable, and now you're doing things that you don't know, you have at least the advantage, at least the potential claim, that you are ignorant, at least, you'll be held very seriously accountable for the fact that you stayed ignorant when you didn't have to. Yes, that you didn't come on Wednesday nights as often as you <laughs> possibly should have. But at least to the extent that you were ignorant beyond your control, you'll be able to say, they never taught me that, I did not know. But if I then inform you about what you're doing wrong, and you do not adapt and change, you now become a sinner deliberately. You're now doing, this person is now doing that thing wrong, and they cannot claim ignorance anymore because someone told them. So you're harming, you have this logic, it's you're harming a person when you walk up to someone and say, do you know that you're doing a transgression, this is a Jewish transgression, the Torah says you may not do this thing. And they didn't know this thing before. Right? So now, you've converted them from what we call a shogeg into a maze. You've converted them from an inadvertent sinner into a deliberate sinner. They now cannot, you hear this? And therefore, it would be better off, if you know they won't listen or they're incapable of listening, you'd be better off, you'd be kinder to them not to correct them in that instance. You have to know your stuff, you have to know when. This is not a question of teaching, this is a question of correcting at the moment when it's happening. Teaching, of course, is acceptable. And there are many things that you do have to correct when the person disobeys something that's explicitly written in the Torah, or that every Jew should know. That every Jew, even non-Jews, knows certain aspects of Judaism. Those things that are so commonly known about Judaism, you cannot say, well, I won't correct them because they don't know. It's a thing that they certainly should, that doesn't apply. But when it's things that people don't know, what would be an example? Well, uh, one that comes to mind. <coughs> in the first few years when I went to live in Israel, I used to play squash. I used to play squash at the YMCA. <laughs> it's allowed, I can assure you. They are
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, they are, they're all Jews over there. Anyway, the
1: point is that, uh,
0: the point is that uh, they have a squash courts and that's it's... Uh, so I used to go and... This. So now afterwards, in the change rooms, um, in, you know, in the showers, all, mu- most of the people who are there are Israelis. Right? Now, I would see that the men, after their game, are shaving with a blade. Now, it's a Torah prohibition for a Jewish man to shave with a blade. Okay, it's a Torah prohibition. It's a very serious thing. You may not shave your face with a blade. You can use an electric razor if it works like a scissor, not like a blade. and We'll discuss that problem another time. <laughs> now... I know that you didn't know, but now you do. <laughs> anyway, the problem is the problem is the problem is that I know that this Israeli this young Israeli fellow certainly doesn't know this, right? The average, average non religious Israeli has extremely little contact with Jewish religious information, unfortunately. It's a very, very broad schism in Israel, so it's extreme polarization. He's certainly never heard of this thing. Now, I'm thinking to myself, should I walk over and tell him that he's not allowed to shave with a blade? Here's a young, athletic Israeli with a razor in his (laughs) hand. This religious-looking fellow is going to walk across and tell him that he's breaking... You know, it's not so clear exactly who's going to get (laughs) shaved. So I...
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: that could be a situation where one is, in fact, prohibited from informing the person because it's extremely unlikely, extremely unlikely, that he's going to desist because I tell him. Right? It's very unlikely that I've informed him about this thing in the change room. He's going to immediately become an you know, observant religious Jew, and he's going to uh, you know, desist from this activity, and therefore... You have to know where you can correct. And so there are many spin-offs that, that are connected, issues that are connected to this area. The Chavitz Chaim points out that there are more than 30 transgressions, more than 30 transgressions that you can do in one act of Lashon Hara, by speaking or listening. Because there are many damages, there are many things that uh, when you speak Lashon Hara, for example, to someone else and they listen, not only are you transgressing and Hara, you're actually transgressing the prohibition of harming another Jew, because you've converted this person into a sinner now. By having him, yes, you're now causing him to listen to Lachon By listening to Lachon you provide that person who's saying it with the opportunity to do their sin. You're guilty of that as well. There are many, many issues here that need to be... Let's spend this evening looking at a... at a different dimension, if that's okay with you. And that is, why is this so serious? Now, we began... We introduced the subject last week. Let's try and take it further. This requires serious thought. There's a secret here also that is absolutely key to one's spiritual survival. In fact, I would, I would venture to say that if you listen carefully, you will find here advice or information or technique, possibly, for being able to virtually get away with almost anything. I'm not suggesting that that's what you should be looking to do, but when you need a certain... We all need a certain... We all need help. <coughs> There's an area here that, if understood correctly, is in a remarkable key, unbelievable key. Let's try to understand First of all, what we need to understand first, firstly is that the basic level is that this is a more serious prohibition than many others. Right? And that's mysterious why it should be like that. L- let's trace it. First of all, you know that the beginning of the destruction of the world began with this kind of speech. When Adam and Eve, when Adam and Chava, were approached by the serpent, right? by the Nachash, the problem there, the, the seduction, the, 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 the entree, the invitation to do that was, which was wrong. Was, was achieved by false speech. Right? The commentaries point out that, that what that which the spoke, what the snake spoke, was not falsehood. It was not false, it was very carefully calculated distortion of truth. It was not falsehood. Right? These people were on a level where you couldn't lure them with a falsehood. I mean I mean think about it. The Nachash said for example, you should eat the fruit of the tree. <clears throat> and the woman said to him, But God told us, Hashem said to us, on the day that we eat we'll die. That says, On the day that you eat from the fruit of the tree, you shall die. Then Nachas said, no, he doesn't mean you'll die. He doesn't really mean you'll die, he means something else. Right? And he said a whole story about exactly what those words mean. You've got to understand, when, when Hashem said that you'll die, he didn't really mean that, and he gave it. But the truth is, he was correct, wasn't he? Because they ate the fruit, they did not die. In the long run, you see that he was not wrong. What happened, what, what, the, what the words really mean is, death will begin. Right? You're an immortal creature now. If you eat from the fruit of the tree, death will enter your being and it will begin to spread. That's true and that did begin to happen. But what he did was he presented information in a certain way that lured them into doing what they shouldn't have done. So the real process of breakdown of all evil in the world began with that misuse of speech, that distortion of speech. Incidentally, you see later, you remember when Moshe Moshe was holding the staff in his hand Remember what happened? And Hashem said, go and tell the Jewish people that they are to leave Egypt, you will lead them out, etc. Remember what Moshe said to Hashem? How will they listen to me? They won't listen to me. They will not listen to me. These people, they enslaved. They... Hashem said, what do you hold in your hand? And He said, the, the staff." And Hashem said, throw it to the ground. you remember? And He threw it to the ground and it became the Nachash. It became the serpent. The deep commentary say it became the original Nachash. Not just a serpent. It became the, the, it became the cosmic... Manifestation of all evil. That was the primal manifestation of evil. That's what it became. Right? It was an immense. It was so terrifying that Moshe Rebbe, the greatest human being who ever lived, during a conversation with Hashem, was so terrified that he fled. And Hashem said, "There's only one way to correct it. Don't flee. Walk up to it and pick it up." And only when he picked it up by its tail, after he picked it up, did it manifest again as the stuff that it had previously been. This whole discussion here. What is? What's going on? What? The stuff we have to discuss and we did discuss, I believe, once before, when we, when we learned the subject of the root of evil in the world, we discussed this mysterious stuff and what it means. But one aspect of it you see here is that it is capable of manifesting as the original embodiment of evil. What was that connected? Why did that happen then? There are sources that say, you know why he was shown that particular sign? you know why he was terrified in that particular fashion, What exactly was the message? He had just said words of Lashonara about the Jewish people. He said, but they won't listen to me. Hashem said, what do you have in your hand? Throw it to the ground. You see what happened? He had said words of, disparaging words about the Jewish people at his incredible level, of course. And immediately what it brought into the world was that embodiment of the original evil. You see, however you understand this, it leads a lot more analysis and a lot more thought. But you see that, however you look at it, there's an energy of evil here that is brought into the world by speaking in this fashion that is cosmic. That is the root of all others. That's one issue. Why? Why? Secondly, there are sources, and I mentioned some of this last week, that say literally incredible, literally incredible things that are impossible to believe, or seemingly impossible to believe about Lashonora. There are sources that say that it's worse than, than murder, idolatry, and immorality. Now, murder, idolatry, and immorality are three, the three worst things in the Torah, from a particular perspective. They're the three things in the Torah that you have to die rather than do. All other things you're allowed and in fact obliged to transgress in order to save life. You have to break Shabbos or eat unkosher food. Torah Mitzvahs we break in order to save life. There are three that you may not break. Sexual immorality, idolatry, which has to be understood exactly what it means, what the context is, and murder, you may not do to save life. Aren't right? There are derivations in the Torah, those three things you can't do. They are sacrosanct beyond, above and beyond saving of a life. <coughs> now it says that Lashon Torah is worse than, worse than those three. Those are three, if you want to use the word cardinal, those are the three cardinal sins or, or problems in, 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 in Jewish law. And it says that Lashon hara is worse. How can Lashon be worse? In what dimension it, can it be worse than those three cardinal things? You say something negative about something. You say someone gets angry. This person gets angry and you say they get angry. That's worse than murder? In what sense? Why? There are no exaggerations in the words of the sages. There are no approximations and metaphors and sort of ha- hyperbole. But the sages say is 100% literally accurate. It's words of Torah. In what way is saying Lashon hara worse than these cardinal and immensely evil actions. Third, there are many examples, there are generations in Jewish history that our commentaries tell us were decimated and destroyed because they said negative things about each other. There were other generations that were not destroyed even though they did much worse things. Why is the key to destruction? Why is the key to having destruction loosed against an individual or generation is speaking of Nora? Perhaps even more difficult than all of these, and let's try and focus on this question, is this. There are spiritual sources, mystical sources that say, stay with me carefully, because this is a central question, that if you do a list, you do many things that are not right. Very bad. There's justice and judgment for everything. The world's built on din, that means everything has to be paid for sooner or later, sooner and later. Everything has to be paid for. You can't get away with nothing. Many people think that the world's like a supermarket with a checkout. You pay at the end. At the end, there comes a judgment. Whenever that judgment is... Actually, our sources say it's not like that. You pay all the time. There's an ongoing assessment of who you are. Many sources say, every night when you sleep, for example, the Neshama leaves the body. It leaves, in fact, through the fingers. And there's a certain judgment. And it gets put back into you the next day. With the, with, the, with the dispensation that's needed according to where you are, there's a judgment, there's a, there's, a, there's a very, very exacting... Now, there are sources that say that this judgment depends on whether you speak lash and horror or not. You know that? That means, in its extreme form, it, look, it looks like this. I'm going to exaggerate it, but just to get the idea. A person can do a whole list of the most heinous and hideous crimes, and from a Torah perspective, they won't be held against you until you speak lash and horror. If you never say anything negative about anybody, then it could be that you could get away with those things. You don't get away with anything. But in a certain sense, there's a certain kind of leniency. To explain exactly what that is, needs more analysis. But there's a certain kind of leniency. It's dealt with in a certain kindly fashion. Let's put it that way. But if you speak Lashon horror, then not only do you have to answer for the act of Lashon horror, then you get hit with all of those things as well. As, as if it's some sort of a key that switches on all the others. That's bizarre. That seems bizarre. How does that work? It means a person can chalk up a list of things that they've done wrong, enormously negative things, and they're all held in a bay, as it were. And then they get up and say one negative thing about somebody, and suddenly they have to answer for all those previous things, and the act of saying that negative. Why? Why is that the key? Why is it more of a key than killing people, than all sorts of things you could do? Why is it the key? Did I tell you, that I mentioned last week, the story of the time? The Chavitz Chaim who taught us these laws, who's the most, the most uh, explicit, or the most acknowledged, or the most well-known, foremost, let's say, authority on this in our generation, who, who is known, in fact, his name, Chavitz Chaim, relates to the subject. He wrote the book on the, the, the classic, the classic work on Lashon Horror, that everybody should study. He, in itself, a question is a question: why he put this as, as such a primary work that this generation has to do in this country Rob Segel from Manchester well know that he spent a lot of his life dedicated to this particular ideal of purifying and correcting our speech the Chavetz Chaim was once in his home on Purim when the Yeshiva Bokhrim were were with him and one of the boys they were drinking and one of them started to pester the Chavetz Chaim in an improper fashion drinking and he said "Rebbe, I want you to promise me a share in the world to come equivalent to yours that's a it's not a proper thing to say. The Chavaz Chaim ignored him. And he kept on... Eventually, when they went through for the surah, for the Purim meal, he blocked the doorway. He stood in front of the Chavaz Chaim. Chaim must have been in his 80s. I don't know how old he was. he was. a great, great tzaddik and righteous man, head of the generation. He said to him, Rebbe, I'm not letting you through unless you promise me a share in the world to come like yours. The Chaim said to me as follows, Who knows what share I have in the next world? But if I do, whatever share I have, I can tell you it's due to the fact that I never said anything negative in my life. Since I became of age to be able to understand this, I never have said anything negative. I never transgressed this area. This is remarkable a person can say that. This is, as I pointed out last week, this is one of those things that runs on automatic. That's virtually, virtually impossible to guard yourself so carefully. That's what he said. And my share in the world to come is due to that. And I can assure you that if you take that on, if you undertake now that for the rest of your life you'll never say or indicate anything negative, disparaging about anyone else, you would have a share. And the story is, people who were present say that this young man stood there for a long time thinking about it and he finally stepped aside. He couldn't take it on. It's too much of an undertaking. It's, a real, it's an incredible and most intense commitment. And the Chatz walked through. And some say that they heard him say under his breath as he walked through, Here you see a man standing at the gates of heaven and refusing to go in. Now that requires understanding. Why this great Torah sage did he pick out of all the mitzvahs in the Torah, there are 630 mitzvahs, there are 365 negative commandments why did he pick out this particular one as being the key to everything else? That's what we need to understand. These three weeks that we're entering now are a time of introspection, they're a time for tshuva, for, 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 for return to the source, to the roots. The work of this time is not mourning, it's the work of correction. The sadness here must be fo- focused on self-analysis and correction. This is a good place to start, very good place to start. <coughs> <coughs> Let's try and understand the enormity of this area and why it has such unique unique power. First of all, speech itself has to be understood for the uniqueness of its power. We discussed this some months ago, I think. We discussed the problem of saying words that are meaningless, the problem of wasted words. I believe then we went into discussion of, of the idea of speech in general. But very broadly, to extract from it, theme that we need for this evening, speech is a central, in fact, definitive element of the human being. You know, we are the ones who speak, in fact, the, the word that the sages use for the human is Madaba. Madaba means the speaking being, the speaking creature. Yes, there is no, no other part of the universe that speaks in the sense that we do. Speaking means, spe- misunderstanding to think that speaking is words from the mouth. That's not what the Hebrew word Dibur means. Dibur, Dabar, that word in Hebrew, does not mean, it, one of its applications means speaking words. But the essence of speech is the, is the delving into the spiritual world, taking that which is an abstraction, like thought, and bringing it down into expression in the world. It just so happens that speech with a mouth is the most sensitive and perfect and most articulate expression of this thing. Because what you can say with your mouth is much more articulate and refined than you can indicate with actions of your body. But in fact, every meaningful action of the body is a speech. Again, any time you have something in concept, in, in potential energy in mind, and you express it in action, right? Whether it's an action of the hands, or a movement of the body. He says you can tell how wise a person is from the way he walks. Every action, let alone dance, is an incredible expression of, of internality. But every action of the body that's a meaningful action, is a speech. It is an indication externally of what was in abstract thought, in potential. Speech with the mouth just happens to be a very refined... It happens to be the closest mode that you can use to the original thought. That the minimal bringing down into the world is to put into words. That's why it's spoken from the mouth, which is above the neck. The neck is the organ of connection to the higher and lower worlds. Now, the Kabbalistic idea is that, and I'm sure you, you'll remember that we've mentioned this many times before, every part of the body is a reflection in physicality of what the root of what the root or the meaning of that thing is in the spiritual world. The eyes are what eyes are, because in the spiritual world, that's what your eyes are. Every part of the body, the face, your face is what it is. The Hebrew word is so obvious when you look at the Hebrew. The Hebrew word face, panim, is the same word as pnim. Panim means the outside, and pnim means the inside. What could be more obvious? The face is that outside part of the body that shows the inside part of the body. It's the only part of the body that, by, in, according to our does not have clothes. The hands as well, it's another special area. Each part of the body indicates, we once discussed, what the forehead is, if you remember, the nose. Each part of the body is, is doing what it does in the world, because the root is that way. And you can learn everything you need to know about the physical, about the spiritual world, by looking nothing other than the body. If you study the body well, if you, if you study any Kabbalistic text many of them discuss nothing other than anatomy. They talk about the body. They're not talking about the body. They're talking about the roots in the supernal world. But since there are no direct words for those things, they simply describe the body, giving you the credit that you will transmit them and switch them into their roots. What is speech in the body? What is speech in the manifest world? It is the taking of abstraction and bringing it into practical expression. The Hebrew word dabar means manifestation of power, from the world of power into control in the world. For example, it says, Yad Ber Amim Tachtenu. That, that phrase means to, to make nations subjugated to another nation, that there's a control exerted by one that the others then follow. Yad Ber Amim. Or it says, Lador. It means one man who controls a generation. That means his ideas and his power manifest on the generation. It does not literally mean speaking. Speaking is only one application of this idea. So the key to understand, the spiritual key is that speaking is nothing other than the incredible human ability that nothing else in the world has to take spirituality, to take the root, and bring it down into expression in the world. Why is the mouth the organ of speech? The mouth is an organ of connection. Speech is connection. Connection between the spiritual world and the physical world. Connection between two beings. How do you connect with someone? You speak to them. Whether it's actions of the body that speak, which often speak louder than words, or it's the articulate nature of the words that you speak, the connection is done with what we call speech, Dibur. In Aramaic, the word Dabar means to take and move. But Dabar means to take a person or people and to move them to another place. It means control and, 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 and the manifestation of control that has an effect. The mouth is the organ of connection. can be seen in the following way. The deep sources talk about this. There are three functions of the mouth. Now, let's understand the mouth and the voice just very briefly this evening. There are three functions of the mouth, and all of them are connection. If the axiom is that every part of the body teaches us about its root, so then it's obvious that if one part of the body has more than one function, those functions must be related to the same root. Gamora in fact asks this question, Gamora says, why don't you have two mouths, one for eating and one for speaking? Gamora says, you do enough damage with one, and that's why you don't have two. But you see that, Gamora says that, but you see that, that, that there's a focus of two things, in fact, there are three things that the mouth does. One is eating, which the spiritual sources say is connection. but We can't, unfortunately, go into detail now. But eating is the process of taking energy in from the world that keeps the spiritual world inside the physical. The reason that the soul stays in the body is because you eat. And why do you have to eat? Why was the world created that eating is necessary? The eleventh of the sayings of creation is the, is the idea of food. After the world is complete and man, man and woman are formed, comes the idea of eating. What is that? It is that the spiritual world, in order to be held within the physical, needs the energy of food. If you don't eat, you become faint. What happens is there begins the process of distraction of the spiritual out of the physical. And if you don't eat for long enough, it snaps out. And if you don't eat for long enough, it never comes back. It's a complete separation. It's the glue or the energy that bonds the spiritual inside. the Chaim says that's the process of sacrifices. That the korbanas, the sacrifices that are brought in the Basel are brought there because that's where the world eats. The spiritual essence in the world, Hashem's presence, resides within the physical structure of the world and it's maintained there by the process, the equivalent process of eating. That's why the laws of the sacrifice are parallel to meals. And that's why the Torah uses the same language for them: it's i lachmi, my bread. Lechem, incidentally, I mean, uh, the word lechem, which means bread in Hebrew, is the root of the word bread and of war. Milcham, in Hebrew is war and Lechem is bread. In fact, the Aramaic word riv, riv, rifta means to means to battle and also means bread. But we'll leave that for another time. But that will need a more detailed explanation. That's that's homework. But the food, the process of eating, is the process of connection. It is keeping the spiritual within the physical. Speaking is the process of connection. That's for the mouth does it. And the third function of the mouth is kissing. That's a natural human manifestation of connection. That's a natural action right, of, of love and affection between two people, you know, a mother and a child, parents and children. The natural manifestation of physical connection that shows bonding is the process of kissing. In the old world, it was common practice for men to kiss each other also. It was a natural in some societies, that's still common. It's a natural expression, but it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Kissing to show connection, to show... You see, you don't think it's strange because you're brought up in a world where that's natural, so you're used to it. But if, you, if, if you'd never seen this thing before, and I asked you to design a physical expression of closeness between two people. I said, to you know, I want you to design a method of two people showing their closeness to each other in a very, very deep and special fashion. You've come up with kissing, it's, it's messy it's unhealthy it's you know it's risky I mean it's, it's bizarre it's actually bizarre objectively it's bizarre but the truth is that human beings built that way it's not bizarre that is what does the mouth which speaks have to do with kissing what does the mouth that speaks and kisses have to do with eating but they three manifestations of the energy of connection which is the part of the world which is the mouth of the world Where's the mouth of the world? The world has a human shape. Oh, it's Israel. Israel has a human shape. Jerusalem has a human shape, a microcosmic human shape. The Besamekdash does. Which part of the world is the speech, is the mouth of the world? The Shalim. The Besamekdash, right? Where the temple is. And what happens in the temple? Isn't it three things? Isn't it three things? In the Kodesh Kodesh, in the inner sanctum, what happens there? In that area, yes, sacrifices are brought. That's where the eating process of the world takes place. That's where the voice is heard. Between the two golden krivim is where the voice is heard, Hashem's voice. Yes, And it says that's the place where heaven and earth kiss. That's where heaven and earth kiss there. It means where the spiritual world is intimately connected with the physical. Now those three functions always go together. So speaking is the connection. Nothing less than the ability to bring the spiritual world down into the physical. How was the creation affected in the first place? By speech. How was the world built? Hashem said. The Torah says, Hashem said let there be. So the, 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 the English ear, which has no connection with Torah, hears that God said let there be. So the English ear hears an instruction. Right? He announced an instruction. Who was he speaking to? Beings, angels, agencies. He was giving an instruction that something should be done. That's not, that's not, that's not the idea. The concept, of let, the concept of his speech is that it was creation itself. His speech was the agency of creation. It doesn't mean he gave an instruction and then it was carried out. The sources say that when he said the word, the word was the thing. He said the world into existence. Do you know that in Hebrew, the word a word and the word an object is the same word. The word davar, which means speech, which means a word, also means generically any object. Why? Because every object in the world is a word of Torah. Every object in the world is a word that he spoke It doesn't mean he gave an instruction. It means he said the thing. We live at a level where we say things, we speak about things. We don't say the thing itself. We speak about a thing. But the world was created in such a way that the word was the thing itself. Speaking is the energy of creation, the connection of the ultimate potential spirituality, bringing it into manifestation in the physical world, no less than that. Where is the voice formed? The voice is formed in the neck. What is the neck? Isn't the neck the organ of connection between the higher world of the head and the lower world of the body? That's what it is. Why do you have a neck? Why do you have a neck? Why do you have a neck? You were brought up thinking that because a few million years ago when you were a giraffe, so you you needed it, you know. You didn't need a neck. You could have walked around like this. You could have turned around like this. (laughs) <laughs> the reason you have a neck is because there's an organ that connects the higher world and the lower world that's a very special function and in that organ the voice is formed the root of speech is in the root of that part of the body this, this part of the body is the connection it brings down it's nothing other than connection right? there's all the nerves flow through there it brings down all the energy from the higher world to the lower world that's what it is it's the organ of connection so the voice is formed there which is the root of the concept of speech the same sources say that that's why the voice is formed in the front of the neck. Because every structure in, in the spiritual teaching, every structure has a front and a back. There's many other things too. it, is left and a right, and many other things inside and outside. But it has a front and a back. The front is always the side of elevation, of kudusha, of sanctity. And the back is always the side of negativity and darkness. Like the front of the body is the side of relationship and of recognition. And the back of the body is the side of darkness and unrecognizability and of excretion. That's what it is. So the front of a structure always reflects its spiritual side. The front of the neck is where the voice is formed, which is the spiritual function of the neck. In fact, in the Kabbalistic writings, this part of the body is called Moshe Rabbeinu. It's called Moshe, it's called Moshe, it's called the high priest or Moshe. This is called Moshe. Why? Because Moshe Rabbeinu is the one who brings Torah to the world. He is the voice that connects the higher world with the lower world. Hashem speaks through the throat of Moshe the Torah, which is living in the high world, manifests in the lower world, that agency of connection is Moshe Rabbeinu, who is the throat of the world. That's what his function is. And therefore, this part of the body is identified with him. If you know a little Hebrew, if you know a little Hebrew, you'll know that the back of the neck in Hebrew is called Haoref. The back of the neck is called Haoref. When you read it backwards, you know that Kabbalistically, when you read a word backwards, you're looking at the back facet of that thing. When you read Haoref backwards, it spells Paloi, Pharaoh. The front of the neck is Moshe, who brings the voice of the divine into the world. And Paro is the one who says, Mi'ashem. I don't know him, he doesn't exist. Not from him. He keeps the voice out. And you couldn't, couldn't be more obvious these things. <laughs> Could it? <laughs> Ruth and Orpah, two sisters, right? One becomes a convert to Judaism. Ruth, she becomes a great, the great-grandmother of King David as a convert. right? She converts into Judaism. And Orpah, her sister, turns her back on that. Her name is Orpah, the back of the neck. She turns around and moves away from it. Ruth means Torah, right? Ruth means Torah. The word Ruth, If you add it up in Hebrew, it comes to 606. Why? Because she already had seven mitzvahs of the non-Jews. She took on the 606 mitzvahs that made her Jew. So her name means Torah. Speech is the connection between the higher and the lower world. And when you pervert that, you break the world down. When you pervert speech, you break the world down. How do you break... uh, If you wish to sabotage the world, then you pervert speech. You break down the ability of the physical world to manifest its spiritual root. That's what you do. It's a key. It's an absolute key. If there's no speech, there's no connection. It's the key to all interaction between spirituality and physicality. And in that sense, it's a key. It's everything that you are. What you put into the world for is to speak. You're a witness. You're supposed to bring out the hidden world and declare it in the world. That's what the Jewish people are. By every action, every flicker of a movement. That's what you're in the world for. You're here to speak out the truth. By the way you live. So when you pervert speech, you're perverting the inner function of what it is to be. Incidentally, why is loss and horror? Yes, beautiful, beautiful idea. Why is loss and horror worse than saying lies? Checker, when you speak falsehood, aren't you perverting speech? Stay with me, it's a beautiful, beautiful point to appreciate. Why when you say a lie, which is a prohibition in the Torah, are you doing something that's not as serious as when you say loss and horror, which is true? Why? Aren't you perverting speech when you say a lie? You know, after we finish dabbing, You know, when you, when you finish dabbing, Naamidah, yes? So the prayer you offer afterwards, which now switches into the singular, when you talk about you, the first thing you say is, Protect my tongue from speaking Lashon Hora, and my lips from speaking falsehood, deception. All right? needs so a long discussion why do we why do we say that then? but the first thing you notice is listen to the words netzole, netzole protect my tongue from speaking evil my lips from speaking deception you see that Loshon Hara which, which, is, which is that particular prohibition is from a deep source it's the tongue that does that again when you speak you need your tongue and your lips you need all five parts of this vocal mechanism right? you need the palate the throat tongue the lips the teeth in all five parts. But, but when we talk about Lashon Hora, we relate to the tongue, an inner organ. When we talk about deception and lies, we talk about the lips, an outer organ. You see that Lashon Hora is a deeper problem than the superficiality of saying lies. Why? Let me try and convey this. Please, stay with me carefully. When you tell a lie, you know what you're doing? You're not speaking. You're pretending to speak. What is speech? Speech is taking what's in here and conveying it out there. Correct? That's what we said it is. I'm able to share with you what's in here because I can speak it out. What's a lie? A perversion of what speech is supposed to be. I'm not speaking. I'm taking something and putting it from the lips out, but it wasn't in here. That's what a lie is. So it's a pretense at speaking. It appears to be what speech is, but it's not. In fact, that's the evil of lies.
1: That's
0: the evil of lies. You're perverting what the mechanism was designed to do which is our Jewish universal definition of evil. The universal natural definition. The real definition of evil, because the Torah says it's evil. But the natural definition of evil in the Torah is that using a tool for that which it was not designed to do. That's the natural definition. When you take speech that obviously is designed to convey what's here to you, and I convey that which is not here to you, I pretend to speak, but I'm not speaking. That's its evil. But what happens when I say Elohim Hashem What did we say was the unique defining characteristic of Lashonara? Saying something negative about somebody, something harmful, something hurtful, that is? True. I am speaking. I'm perverting speech. I'm not pretending to speak. I'm using real speech. I'm speaking the truth and I'm using that to do harm in the world. That's a much deeper betrayal. Is this clear? If someone is disloyal to someone, and they have the chutzpah, To go and act in intimacy with someone else. And they use as a gift of intimacy something that they shared with the other person. Not just are they being disloyal here. The the depth of the pain there is to take the intimacy and take the depth that was shared and use that to betray. Why do we finish our tefillah? We say, we daven, right? Shimon Esrei. What are we davening? He's speaking to Hashem, right? How do you speak to Him? You use speech. That's how you connect with Him directly. The government says it would be best to daven all day. It's not only asking for what you need. It's the ultimate experience, the ultimate meditation. So what are you doing? You're engaging in what you were created for. You, engage, you were created to speak. And that's what davening is. You're speaking, connecting with Hashem. And then you finish one Esra and you realize this organ that you've been using to speak with, your mouth, the mechanism of speech, is it pure? Yes? Have you used this organ correctly? What kind of a chutzpah is it? you hear this this disloyalty? What kind of chutzpah is it to go and use your mouth for saying harmful and hurtful things and using unclean language, coarse and unrefined language, a Torah prohibition by the way. And you've used your mouth to do all kinds of prohibitions. You get a nickname. The Rambam says you give someone a nickname, you lose your share in the world to come. You use a nickname, you should lose your share in the world to come. A derogatory nickname. If it's negative, you lose your share in the world to come. I'm not talking about calling somebody cookie or doll face. <laughs> As
1: to them. I'm
0: talking about calling them fatty or smelly. <laughs> you lose your share in the world to come. You've done sins of speech. And now you turn to Hashem and use the same mouth that you use the coarse language of the street. Right? Huh? That you sullied and soiled your your most holy apparatus. And now you turn and try and use that in a connection with Him. What a shame. What a shameful experience. And therefore the Jew has that humility. After you know, what else can you do? How else can you speak to? So you speak. But then when you retreat, you're about to take three steps back and move out of His presence. You say, Hashem, help me get this organ purified. That's the only thing I have to connect with. I'm aware of the humiliation of having to use that same thing that I used in this loyalty to you and try and connect with you. So the first personal tefillah that you offer after you've spoken to him is the tefillah that the technique, the organ, the method of connection itself should be elevated. Let's move on and discuss one last element. I hope this is serving at least as an introduction to the deep understanding of what this area is. This is only the briefest of scratching the surface. There's are many, many things to be discussed here. But I want to share with you just at least one practical and tangible and hopefully motivational insight into why this is a key. And this will change the rest of your life. If this doesn't change you radically, there's no hope for you at all. <laughs> so stay, stay tuned. There's nothing more important than this. I'm going to share with you a gift that is priceless. Okay? Literally priceless gift. Why is it let's focus on one of the questions to make it as crystal clear as possible. Why is it that you can do a whole list of negative things and you will not be punished? I'm using that loosely, okay, I hope that's understood. You will be punished, you have to pay for everything. But how is it that you get away without the strict justice of what's called the based best in Bestin Based in Shalmala means, very briefly, there are different ways of being dealt with. The kindliest ways when Hashem deals with you himself let's fall into Hashem's hands, certainly not human beings. That's the most dangerous. The worst way of getting dealt with is by human beings is complete, that's, that's terrifyingly dangerous. Human beings are far more dangerous than all the snakes and scorpions and all the terrors and tragedies in the world. They're nothing compared to human beings. That's what David Amalek says, Hashem, Hashem. let us fall into Hashem's head, but not, not into human hands. Then you can't trap. So he'll take care of you fine, but what he'll do is fine. Human beings, that you stay away from. But... But there's a thing called based in Shomala which means Hashem deals with you himself but if He deals with you through the based in Shomala it means a courtroom. There's a courtroom in the higher world and it's set up exactly like a courtroom here and it's 100% exacting. There's no leeway over there. The rules are applied exactly and it's very bitter. Very bitter. It says that the da'ara that means that or the based in the, means the way the court is set up here is Ke'en Malchus da'ara the way The way the the justice system is set up in a human court is the way... You want to know what it looks like in the spiritual world? You want to know how you'll be judged there? Do you want to know how your Meshama is judged every night? You want to know what happens every Rosh Hashanah and what will happen the moment you die? You examine a human court. And in in this human court process, you learn everything you need to learn about the spiritual judgment. Now, let's get this clear and careful. Remarkable thing. I'm going to try and show you now why you 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 can defeat as it were, the justice in that system, but, and gain for yourself being handled in a kindly way. Or at least get an extension, at least fix yourself up. You can get out of that very harsh ju- judgment if you avoid speaking and Hora. I want to show you why. Let's, let's understand the process, okay? This is, a, this is the last idea I want to share with you, Zim. Let's understand the process. The process is you're going to get judged. And the judgment will take place in a court. And the court will have exactly the same elements that a human court has. There'll be a prosecutor, (coughs) he'll read out the charges against you, the tribunal, there'll be an agent, there'll be a a, a defense, there'll be a prosecution on a defense, they'll call character witnesses. It's exactly the same, and the the, the, Mephoshim go through the details. Every element in that court is exactly the same as in a court that happens on earth. And the process is 100% parallel, and you need to defend yourself in the same way. Let's go through it. What happens first? What happens first in in a court case? Listen carefully, it's unbelievable. What happens first in a court case? The very first thing that happens is you do something wrong. That's why you're there. That's why this whole trial is going on, because you did something you shouldn't have done. Don't sin. Don't do anything wrong. You'll never get a summons. You'll be okay. That's the first way of blocking the process. Don't do anything wrong. Step number two. You did something wrong. You did something wrong. Try fix it up. Before they try to fix it up, wipe it out. Destroy the evidence.
1: <laughs>
0: in spiritual terms you do chuba you do chuba you eradicate the damage you won't get a summons the real mechanism in spiritual terms is that you change who you are so that they can't summons you because you're not the one who did it that's what chuba means you really change yourself and so it goes on let's say you get a summons right? and they set a court uh, time for your trial so what do you do immediately you have your lawyer apply for a stay off trial don't you that's what you do you put it off don't you you say to Hashem, give me time. That's what you say. You say, give me time. So I want to work on myself and do you I want to come with a bit more preparation. I want to generate some more character witnesses. What happens if that's, that fails? Yeah, you put it off. Now's your time. Now you get a good lawyer. Get your lawyer to, give, to bring very good character witnesses. Right? Yes? You go into court and the judge looks at you and you look a bit scruffy and he doesn't know. Who you. So your lawyer calls in these incredible very important people in the community who rattle off this whole string of incredible selfless acts that you've done. It makes a big impression on the, on the court, on the jury. Then the prosecution's going to call in all his character, all these grotesque creatures. They're going to come in and say all the bad things you've done. You know what happens in the next world? You know what happens in the spiritual world? You know what the character witnesses are? Every mitzvah you do creates an angel. Every mitzvah, every positive action, every positive word, every word of Torah that you learn, every kindliness that you do creates a malach, an angel. Forget what angel means in English. Forget about it. We've got no time to talk about that now. Let's just use the word, The malach. You know what he is? He's an incandescent and cosmically powerful spiritual creature, and he's the mitzvah that you did, and he looks exactly like you. He looks like you in the form of that mitzvah. And all your mitzvahs are crowded into the wings. they incandescent, luminescent, white, beautiful, ephemeral creatures. And when you stand in that courtroom, they all crowd onto the stage, and they say, "Look at, Look at look us. But then from the left-hand side are the angels that you created through all your avarice, through all the things that you shouldn't have done. And they are slimy, black, and grotesque, hideous, fearsome creatures. And they look like you. exactly like you. <laughs> and there's an almighty battle, because the prosecution calls them on. And they all strut around saying, look at me, did me. Very humiliating. Now make a good impression on the court. So when you want to get up there to that courtroom, you want to be sure you've got a lot of good character witnesses to testify. So you do lots of misfits, that's what you do. And you don't do many those, you minimize them, that's what you do. And so forth, and just understand? And finally, if, you, if there is a, a sentence, you apply for mercy, clemency, right, in the sentencing. First you apply for a stay of, of the thing. And finally, when they sentence you, you apply for a stay of execution, don't you? You tell them you're not well, and you've got to recover. <laughs> Then you apply for a state, you apply instead of for uh, uh, the punishment thing, the the, the sentencing, what do you call it, the execution of the sentence, you apply for clemency. You ask them if they can't let you do, instead of going through what they've given you, ask if you can't do public service. Yes, can you rather do two years of public service? You pay it off little by little, it's much more kindly. Ask Hashem, can he please send you your suffering slowly over a long period of time so you can handle it? That's what you do. You apply for all of these things. Now, let's backtrack. You see what's going on? It's a wonderful marshal to remember. It's more than a marshal, I can assure you. Now, <clears throat> let's backtrack and understand a bit more deeply. Listen, listen well. This is an amazing secret. Every part of that process, every single part of that process, you have created. Every part of that courtroom is your creation because your judgment in the next world is nothing other than who you are. What's called Mitter Kenegad Mitter, the whole world runs on what's called Mitter Kenegad Mitter, measure for measure. Nothing ever happens. One of the great Hasidic masters said that Hashem never punishes you for anything until He first shows you someone doing what you did and He waits to hear if you're critical. And when you say something critical, that's when you get it. You only get what you do. You only get what you do. There's nothing else in the world. All you get is what you've done. We don't see it always now. But it's a 100% guarantee no matter how distorted the world is now. The Gemara says that never fails. Everything in that courtroom is you. All those malachim on the good side are your actions. All the ones on the bad side are your actions. Every character in that courtroom. Everything, every piece of evidence. Everything that happens is nothing other than you. Now, can you see this? In other words, what's going on, in childlike terms, we say it's a courtroom and there's angels. In sophisticated spiritual terms, all that's happening is you are being exposed to you. That's all. That's your sentence. That's its execution. That's the humiliation. That's the pain. That's that's all there is. There are you... But we, we, we convey it in this, yes, in this childlike marshal of a courtroom with all its elements. Now, have to learn to see these things in more sophisticated terms. Nevertheless, you can speak to a child at this level, it should. Now, of all those characters in that courtroom drama, there's one who's special. There's one who's special. They're all special. they all got something unique. But there's one that you need to focus on most carefully. And you know who he is? He's the prosecutor who reads out the list of your crimes. He holds the key. Why does he hold the key? You know, I was once in court in Israel. I once had to go to court. It's court. Incidentally, it's a most terrifying experience. If the judgment in the next world is anything like that, and I was only in court for not paying my vehicle license registration fees, <laughs> and they terrify you for weeks in advance, I mean, it's like a sleepless night. It's an unbelievable thing. If that's how you feel when you didn't pay some license <coughs> fees because you couldn't read the language, can you imagine what's going to happen when you're on trial for something serious. So I learned an important lesson. What happened was, <coughs> a couple of years after immigrating, I hadn't paid my vehicle registration fees. My Hebrew wasn't, you know, that good, and these papers it used to keep coming. And eventually, it started coming in red.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> what I didn't realize was they were no longer papers asking me for my vehicle registration fees, they were summonses for contempt of court. That's what they were. But I didn't read those either. But finally, finally they made it plain to me that I had to appear, yeah? The bailiffs arrived, I had to appear in court on a certain day, and not for not paying licensees for contempt of court, I mean, that's serious stuff. So what happened was, I went to court on that day, it's the most terrifying experience. First of all, you sit in an open courtroom, it's a public, it's a public trial. It's not like you get the, you know, the, the, the delicate sort of private, you know, how you feeling and what can we do for you. He's sitting in a private, in a public courtroom where he's scarred characters of, you know, vicious and violent, I mean, the, he's giving out death sentences, right, left, and so on. It's a frightening thing. <laughs> Finally, after I'm absolutely, you know, reached the, like, full measure of terror, it's my turn. So I stand up in the dock, and as I stand up, the judge turns out to be a very nice, gentle looking, religious individual. It's Israel, Right? So he says he says to me Where are you from? So I said, I'm from South Africa. So he said, Oh, whereabouts? So I said, From this one. he said, Oh, do you know my friends? This one, this one, this one and we
1: had,
0: had this whole wonderful conversation about all our mutual friends. And then he said to me, oh, okay you can go. He was very fair, very, very fair.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so as I'm about to step down from the dock, I'm about to leave. He said, "I could go, right?" The public prosecutor, who's a policeman, stands up and he says to him, says to the judge, "You can't do that. This is Israel, right?" He says to the judge, "You can't do that. You Can't do that. He's a criminal. Can't do You've got to at least a death sentence. You're torturing you. You <laughs> so, The judge says, "The judge says to the prosecutor, what do you want from Israel? Is a She didn't. You know, Hebrew wasn't that good. In. He's a criminal. He's a criminal.'" He's a criminal. The prosecutor said, no, You can't do that. He broke the law. You've got to sentence it. It was then that I learned that this prosecutor is the key. Incidentally, what happened was fascinating, amazing. The judge was a religious individual. Right? He's a learned Jew. And he said to me the following thing. He said, You know what? He's right. I have to sentence you. But you know what I'm going to do with you? Unbelievable thing, amazing thing. It's worth going to court for this to happen to me. <laughs> he said, he said, I'm going to fine you. I'm going to, I'm going to impose on you a sentence that the Talmud requires. The Talmud says there's a principle called It means that a sinner should not benefit from his sin. That means even if you don't deserve to be punished, there's no reason you should benefit. Do you understand the logic? So maybe you've got extenuating circumstances, but it doesn't mean you should benefit from your crime. He said, I'm going to fine you exactly what all your license fees would have cost you. Isn't that beautiful? And he made a calculation of what it would have cost me, and he imposed the fine on me had to walk across the cashier and pay exactly what I would have had to pay. That's a little piece of real justice. That's remarkable. Anyway, why am I telling you this story? Because you learn from this that the prosecutor holds the key. Now, listen well. Everybody in that courtroom is you. Everybody's you. Every c- character in that courtroom, tense drama that's unfolding is something that you've done. Right? And He's only there because you created Him. And therefore, if you control your actions carefully, you can control who those people are. Right? And you should think that way. I'll give you an example. You know, the Rambam says that if someone asks you for forgiveness, you know, in the midst of chuba, you have to ask people for forgiveness. Before you can do chuba, before you can do repentance and correct your actions, if you sin against someone else, you can't do it till you have their forgiveness. You have to ask them. And if someone asks you, you should forgive them. What happens if someone asks you for forgiveness and you cannot do it? You can't handle it emotionally. They hurt you so badly, you can't forgive them. It happens, it happens unfortunately. A man once came to the brisker rope and he asked him for forgiveness for something that he'd done. The rope said, no. He said, come back in three weeks. And the man sh- sweated for three weeks, and he came back and he said, I worked on it and I forgive you. Not simple. So what happens if you can't forgive someone? You cannot forgive them. They hurt you very, very badly. You can't forgive them. You cannot find it in your heart to forgive them. You need a little motivation, a little schmutz. You know what you do? You say, you, know, you say to yourself this, you know how the world works? can I Measure for measure. I only get what I do. There'll be a time one day when I'll be judged. You're all going to be judged. You're going to be judged. And what will happen when you stand in judgment and you've done something that you don't deserve to be forgiven for? You won't be forgiven. There's no question about it. It's true justice, 100% justice. You'll not be forgiven, you'll pay. But if you ever forgave somebody who didn't deserve to be forgiven you'll be forgiven now even though you don't deserve it because you do deserve. Because that's what you did. You hear this? And therefore, when someone asks you for forgiveness and you don't feel able to do it, forgive them even though they don't deserve it. That's not a very good motivation. It's a selfish motivation, but it's good enough. And because you forgave them, because you let it go, even though you could have extracted strict justice, when you're in a tough situation and they can exact strict justice from you, they will let it go because you did that. You only get what you do. Is this clear? Now, let's go back to our courtroom. Listen carefully. All those characters in the courtroom are your actions. Every angel who walks onto the stage and says, I'm your action, this is what you did, is you. Every single element over there is you. Who is the public prosecutor? Who is he? You know who he is? He's your Loshan horror. When you spoke Loshan horror, when you said something about somebody that was true but bad, you created an angel in the next world who says about you what's true and bad and if you've done all the sins in the book there's a long scroll of terrible things but you never said anything bad about anybody ever the courtroom opens up and they all take their seats and there's no one to read out the charges (laughs) and it's 100% fair because you did that if you never created him, he's the key. The judge sits around tapping his foot and all the angels walk up and down and these walk up and down and you sit there shaking. And there's no one to read out the charges. It just doesn't happen. But if you speak Lashon Hara, you hear the logic. But if you speak Lush and Hara, you once get up and say something about somebody that's 100% accurate. That's what Lashon Hara is. And it's 100% true. Suddenly there pops into existence this creature who is able to say about you what is 100% true and 100% accurate. And that's exactly what he does. And then you have to pay for him and all the rest of the things on the bill. And that's why it's a key. That's why it's a key. You can avoid this. You get dealt with medical. You never accuse. You never raise an accusation. The Chavitz Khan knew. He knew that we've got so many things ranged against us. But you guard yourself carefully, you never put out that accusation, you never do that, you guard yourself so carefully, you never bring that into question, no one ever gets harmed because of you. Even though they deserve it, you'll be in a situation you'll be in a situation where there are things that you deserve. But if you've built that energy in the world, you've omitted from your world the accusatory the accusatory element and you don't have it. In other words, you don't allow that connection between the higher world and the lower world where it's going to manifest in negativity and thing. you don't have it. This is a childlike and simplistic explanation of a very, very deep subject, but it pays, to, it pays to remember this much. So, what we learned this evening, or the last couple of weeks, was a beginning of insight into the process of speech, the process of misusing speech in many ways, and particularly the, the, the most sharp and painful and destructive method of using speech which is to use it correctly that means truthfully and to generate harm and accusation in the world it's a special Jewish sensitivity we don't get into the the slander and the, the, the wit and the, the repartee the, 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 the character assassination that's done in private and in public that the West runs on that gives the spice of we don't do that we don't do that we make a point of not speaking about people at all for fear of getting into this area We are taking great care to sensitize ourselves in this area. You cannot afford to relate to people who are telling you painful and negative and secret things about other people is completely, as I pointed out last week, it's so naturally wrong. That means if someone tells you a secret about someone else, something negative about them, there's no question that the next moment they'll be saying something that they know about you to the next person. How can you possibly relate to someone like that? How can you possibly have an intense friendship? How can you possibly open up to someone who tells you juicy and negative things about other people? aren't you aware that tomorrow they'll be saying what they know about you to the next person? And therefore, from a point of genuine, of basic decency, and a point, and also from the point of spiritual depth, this is the, as we enter the three weeks of, of the deepest and most painfully negative time of the Jewish year, where our work, in fact, is to reach into that phase of darkness and bring the light out of the darkness, this is the place, perhaps, to start.